Psalm 46 in the Pew Bibles. It is on page 403. 40, 403. 403. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give away, give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at the break of day. Nations are in uproar, kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice, the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I'll be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. May God bless the reading of his word. Uh, when I looked at the first word, I might have guessed that the term, here we go, that the term con was short for something like convict, since the people who do these things are, you know, criminals in a sense. Uh, but I learned this week, and maybe uh, you already knew this, that the word con is actually short for confidence. One who gains another's trust, such that a person is persuaded to do something for him or her. Um, the term was popularized in 1849 uh, with the arrest of a Mr. William Thompson. They said he was a man of gentle appearance who would approach strangers on the street. And somehow he was able to c- convince many of them to entrust him with their watches until the next day. And as you can guess, they never got their watches back. And so when he was arrested, they they used the term confidence man, which we now shorten to con man. And I suspect most of you are wise enough not to fall for con artists or scams. But we're going to talk this morning about who or what it is we should place our confidence in. And if you've been coming for the last couple weeks, you know we've started a series on the Psalms, and we'll be continuing the series for a couple months. Uh, With 150 psalms, we're not going to go through all of them, um, but we wanted to spend enough time so that you would get exposure 
to the different types of sounds and gain a greater appreciation for them. Um, there are different types of sounds broken up into various categories. Uh, different scholars have divided the sounds in different ways. But in general, here are a few of the categories. Um, probably the most familiar type of sound is the thanksgiving or praise sound. In these sounds, the psalmist declares his desire to praise the Lord. Psalm 34 would be an example of this. Reverse one says, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. Another example would be Psalm 103, uh, verse 1 to 2. In Psalm 103 says, Praise the Lord, O my soul, all my inmost being. Praise his holy name. Praise the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. So that's probably the most familiar type of sound that you know, we, we think of, is the thanksgiving or praise sound. An opposite of a thanksgiving or praise sound is what's called lo, the lament sound. The lament sound. In these sounds we see the author crying out to God in distress. Psalm 22 is one example. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? And then a third category would be the wisdom sounds. Wisdom sounds. Wisdom sounds teach us the proper ways to live. They contrast ways of living that bring about different consequences, both good and bad. You can see this in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, verse 1 says, Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And then in verse 6, it contrasts this. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And then the last two weeks, Dr. Arthur spoke on Psalm 119 and Psalm 19. These are also two wisdom psalms that talk about the wisdom of knowing the Word of God. You remember Psalm 19, 7, which he discussed last week. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. So those are the wisdom psalms. And then a fourth category would be kingship sounds, either referencing a human king or a heavenly king. Psalm 20 would be an example of an earthly king psalm. The last verse of this psalm says, O Lord, save the king. Answer us when we call. Psalm 47 would be an example of a heavenly king psalm. Verse 7 of Psalm 47 declares, For God is the king of all the earth. Sing to him a psalm of praise. And then a final category I would mention is a psalm of confidence, psalms of confidence. In these psalms, the psalmist expresses his trust in God's goodness and power. Psalm 3 would be an example of this. Verses 3 to 4 state, But you, Lord, are a shield around me. May glory the one who lifts my head high. I call out to the Lord, and he answers me from his holy mountain. And then we'll see in a few moments that our psalm today fits into this category. But you may have noticed when I was going over these different categories and, and, and the you know, types of different psalms that we can be very flexible uh, in terms of the psalms because uh, if you, you know, kind of were listening to the verses as they were being read, you know, some of these psalms fit into more than one category. You know, Psalm 47, which I said was a kingship psalm, could also fall into a hymn or praise psalms because it's praising God, because they, uh, the psalmist recognizes God as the heavenly king. 
Um, so, you know, maybe some of these sounds will fit into more than one category. But knowing all this, you know, maybe your question is, well, why does it matter? I mean, why do we need to know that there are different types of sound? What's the difference? Well, let me give you two reasons why it should make a difference. Well, first, by understanding that there are different types of sounds, it helps us to see the broad array of emotions and situations in which these psalmists write. The psalmist writing a Thanksgiving psalm was probably in a much different emotive state than one writing a lament psalm, and sometimes it was the same person writing the two different types of psalms. And because we see you know, real honesty across various situations, real honesty before God, it teaches us that we can do the same. You know, someone taught a person, if you want to learn how to pray, study the psalms. And I think there's truth in this statement, because when we see the raw emotions spilled out before God, when they see them just crying out to God and bearing their souls, it helps us to understand that we don't need to ask whether we can be real before God. You know, if we can ask God tough questions or tell them, you know, how we really feel. If we see the psalmist do it, we can do the same. And in addition, in studying the different types of psalms, we actually find much theological truth in the book. I mean, even though you know, it's not written like a you know, systematic textbook, it's not written like you know, one of Paul's letters, it's more poetry. Um, but as Chris was teaching in our Sunday school, or has been teaching in our Sunday school this month, you know, what's important to grasp is our covenant relationship that we have with God. And in reading the Psalms, we find the psalmists, these authors, speak to God or write to God on the basis of this relationship with God. So, so for example, Psalms is not like the book of Romans, where Paul outlines deep doctrinal truths and in it talks about sin and God's forgiveness. But when we turn to the Psalms, and we see the psalmist you know, crying out to God, to him, and asking for forgiveness, basing on the psalmist's repentant heart, asking God for his mercy, and declaring how merciful God is. When he describes the sin, and he sees how his sin weighs him down, you know, this exemplifies truth and God's forgiveness. So even though you know, the author is not like writing it out to explain everything very neatly, we still can find much theological truth in the Psalms. So even though, you know, actually the last of the Psalms was written about 2,500 years ago, and the culture and context in which they were written is very different from what it is today, I think much can be gained from studying the Psalms, which hopefully you have already seen in the last two messages that Dr. Arthurs gave in the past two weeks. So with that in mind, let's move on to our psalm for today. And in the very beginning of the psalm, we find the author expressing a radical trust in God in spite of overwhelming threats. God is our refuge and strength, he says, an ever-present help in times of trouble. And I'm not sure what comes to mind when you first hear the word, word refuge, you know, refuge is defined as a place of protection or shelter in times of trouble. Uh, for many people, I think a favorite place of refuge is their bed. 
Um, for my family, uh, many of us, myself included, were meaning to take a break and just get away. We just crawl in the bed and rest for a few minutes. And afterwards, we feel a lot better. But on a deeper level, you know, the psalmist sees God as his refuge. And he does so because, as he writes, God is this ever-present help in times of trouble. The psalm breaks down neatly into three sections. If you look in your Bibles, you can easily see how it's divided because each section ends with this word salah. Or if you don't actually see the word salah in, in the text, you can look at your footnote at the bottom. There's probably a footnote that says in these, at the end of these verses, there's this word salah. And salah, well, first, um, psalms was written primarily as worship songs for people to sing in corporate worship. And salah was uh, a term generally thought to indicate a pause in the musical presentation or an instrumental interlude. So it's much like we use the term verse or bridge today for music. So from these three sections, which end with the word salah, you know, we see how they're nicely broken down and we see the different contexts in which the psalmist expresses his supreme confidence in God. So in the first section, we find the psalmist expressing trust that God is a refuge through raging nature. God is a refuge through raging nature. If you still have your Bibles open to verse to Psalm 46, you can follow along. Verses 2 to 3, read again. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. The pictures you see on the screen are images from the uh, great tsunami that hit Japan in 2011. If you recall, a magnitude 9.0 earthquake occurred beneath the sea about 80 miles east of Sendai. This caused waves as high as 33 feet to inundate the coast and parts of the city. The disaster resulted in, in the deaths of more than 18,000 people and caused at least $235 billion in damage, the most expensive disaster in history. The survivor recounts watching her parents being washed away. This Harumi Watanabe was with her parents in their living room when the tsunami waves hit. She described that they were old and too weak to walk, so I couldn't get them to the car in time. She held their hands, but the waves tore them apart. The last thing she heard was them yelling, I can't breathe. Harume herself barely survived. I stood on the furniture, but the water came up to my neck. There was only a narrow band of air between me and the ceiling. I thought I would die. And here in Psalm 46, the psalmist um, sees an even greater disaster happening with the mountains falling into the sea. If you recall, during the creation process, you know, when God created, you know, the, the land and, and the, and, uh, you know, man and the animals, God set boundaries by gathering the waters to one, one place, and when he gathered the waters to one place, dry ground appeared. And because of these boundaries, it allowed humans and land creation to survive. When the great flood came with Noah, creation was threatened when the waters erased the established boundaries that God had set. 
And this is a similar picture or image of what the psalmist is seeing here in, verse 40, in Psalm 46. If the waters roared and foam and the mountains fell into the sea, all of creation would be threatened. But in the face of such disaster, the psalmist places his confidence in God because he is this refuge in times of trouble. You may already know that um, other ancient civilizations actually have their own versions of the Genesis flood. And what's interesting is that in the Mesopotamia flood account, the way they account for it, the Mesopotamian gods actually hide behind the walls in their heavenly abode, fearing that the waters were so powerful that they would be destroyed as well. But here in our psalm, the psalmist declares, not Yahweh, he cannot be defeated. I will place my confidence in him even though the waters roar and the mountains fall into the sea. Then a second scenario finds the psalmist claiming God to be his refuge through raging nations. Raging nations. Verses 4 to 6. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice. The earth melts. The city of God, in verse 4, refers to Jerusalem. And the holy place where the Most High dwells, in turn, refers to the temple. And in verse 5, the psalmist states that because God is with, within these places, she will not fall. And that's kind of an interesting verse, because if you know a bit about Old Testament history... This statement actually seems wrong because you may recall that around 587 BC, the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, captured Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and exiled the Jews. So, how could the psalmist make such a statement? But explain, we need to understand that it's not the people, that the people were to view Jerusalem and its temple as invincible. In the past, some people reading verse, verses like verse 5 are convinced that this was a declaration that it would be impossible for foreign troops to take over Jerusalem and the temple. But this was mistaken, for this is not where they were to place their security. Jeremiah, in chapter 7 of his book, warns the Israelites, Do not trust in deceptive words and say, This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things? So Jerusalem and the temple were not to be thought of as their place of security. God was to be their ultimate place of security. God was to be their fortress. This is why the psalmist can place his trust in him. But that also meant, as we saw in Jeremiah, being obedient to him. But even though the Israelites disobeyed and Jerusalem was taken over and the temple destroyed, I mean, there's no temple even now, God would reestablish a new Jerusalem that would not be invaded or destroyed 
In Zechariah 14, verse 11, Zechariah prophesies about Jerusalem. It will be inhabited again. Never again will it be destroyed. Jerusalem will be secure. And then in the last section, the psalmist finds God to be a refuge because he is a righteous ruler. He is a righteous ruler. Verses 8 to 11. Come and see the works of the Lord, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in all the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Currently, we read much about the war in Syria. Millions have been displaced. The latest estimates I found state that more than 400,000 have died. Of the more than 400,000 who died, it was reported that more than 15,000 of these 400,000 were children. And even those children who survived often suffered great abuse, including rape, torture, and recruitment for combat. And we read about this and just see the situation in Syria and we're like, God, when is this going to stop? But this psalm shows us that one of God's ultimate goals will be to make war cease to the ends of the earth. There will come a day when violence and its consequences will be no more. I mean, what a grand day that will be. In verse 10, I think may be familiar to many of us. Be still and know that I am God. And when we think about this idea of being still and knowing that he is God, we may think about this call to move into like a quiet, meditative state to reflect on God. And though there is some truth to this thinking, uh, it's actually an incomplete picture. Because in the original language, the word used for be still meant it means to cease, to, dis- to desist. It commands combatants to stop fighting and let God do his work of abolishing war. The next part of the verse reminds us that it, God does this to accomplish his purposes. He is the one who will be exalted. We are to be still before God and rest in his presence, not so that he can work things out according to our purposes, but for his He works to magnify himself across the earth, and in doing so, he shows himself to be this righteous ruler who rules with peace and justice. So here's a summary of the three main ideas that meant, the three main ideas that this meant to the original readers back then. But then you may ask, well, what does this mean to us? You know, if we're not currently experiencing a catastrophic disaster, we were not under the threat of war or engaged in battle. Well, what meaning should this psalm have for us? And we should recognize that on a deeper level, the this, this psalm calls us to recognize the radical confidence we can have and should place in God. The scenarios in the first two sections, you know, obviously describe end-of-life situations, right? Devastating earthquakes and floods, that lead to life being decimated, wars that could threaten the very existence of humanity. And in spite of these horrifying prospects, the psalmist maintains a deep confidence in God. 
And what makes this very noteworthy is that in, back in the Old Testament times, the ancient Israelites didn't actually have a grand theology of the afterlife. For many, they did not have this concept about life in heaven afterwards. If, this, if disaster struck, they weren't thinking, well, this is fine because I'll just go be with God in heaven. So to claim that they would remain confident in God, even though death may be upon them, indicated that they were not only convinced that God was worth living for, they were also convinced that God was worth dying for. In New Testament times, one commentator noted that this is something similar to what Jesus taught in Matthew. In Matthew 6.25, during his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? And this is a familiar verse, once again, I think, to many of us. And when we hear it, we often think of it in terms of relative terms. In fact, some versions even translate it by asking, is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? But this word important is not in the original language. And it's critical to recognize this because it's not meant to be thought of from a relative perspective. And what I mean is, if we think about it from a relative perspective, the answer to this question obviously would be yes. Of course, life is more important than food. Of course, life is more important than clothing. But when Jesus asks, is life not more than food and the body more than clothing, from a basic survival perspective, the answer actually is no. For without food, we wouldn't live too long. And without protective clothing, especially if you live in a climate like we do here in Boston, we also wouldn't last too long. So Jesus is challenging his readers to say that even though food and clothing is vitally important to our existence, there is something more worthy to live for and even die for if necessary. And this commentator stated, We are willing to face death and dissolution of this world, not because we are assured life after death, or not because we are just assured life after death. We live faithfully in the face of the ultimate threat of life because God is at the core of the food and drink that makes our life worth living. That's why Jesus says shortly afterwards, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given you as well, but maybe not in the form you think. And that's how Jesus lived when he was on earth. And he took this conviction all the way to his death on the cross. In 1527, Martin Luther faced one of the most challenging periods in his life. The Black Plague was sweeping across Germany, causing Luther's son to nearly die. Luther faced continual mounting pressure and criticism as he fought the abuses and the corruption of the church at that time. And during this dark period, he reflected on Psalm 46 and was reminded of the invincibility of the Lord. Many times during this tumultuous period, he would turn to his co-worker, Philip Melanchthon, and say, Come, Philip, let us sing Psalm 46 together. 
And together they would sing these words, Luther penned, based on this psalm. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing, a helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. Luther had this radical confidence in God that sustained him throughout his hardships and throughout persecution. And the question is, do we see or do people see a radical confidence that we have in our lives because we have placed it in God? When things don't go according to your plans, do you remain steadfast because you're wholeheartedly confident in God's plans? You know, for you high school seniors, if you don't get into this college you want to go to, do you feel fine because you know you got into the college God wanted you to go to? For the rest of us, if like career plans don't work out as well as we think they should go, or a career path isn't on the trajectory we think it should be on, if relationships don't always turn out according to how we would like them to, do we have a peace and trust that God is working things out according to his plan? And that's what we want more than anything else. And does this confidence cause us to live differently? You know, from Matthew 6.25, we may eat to live, but let's not live to eat. I mean, we know the former is what's correct, but sometimes our lives kind of resemble the latter. And if so, from this psalm, God would instruct us to be still, cease, desist, and recognize that it's not us we are to exalt or live for, but it's God. Because... God will be exalted one way or the other, whether we choose to or not. So I pray that those in the world, when they see the decisions we make, when they see how we choose to live our lives, they would think that we're crazy to live the way we do and make the decisions we do if God didn't exist. Let's not make decisions and choices that everyone else would make as if God doesn't exist. So may we see God as an ever-present help who seeks to glorify himself amongst the earth. May we place our trust in him, knowing that he is this ever-present help in times of trouble. And may our desire be to exalt God as he seeks to exalt himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are our refuge, an ever-present help in times of need. You are sovereign and you work things out according to your purposes, not ours. But we know, Lord, that you are a good God and your plans for us are true and right and just. We thank you for that. So may we be wholeheartedly convinced of that and live in a way that reflects this radical confidence we have in you. And it probably sings in Jesus' name. Amen.